all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fossone. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday. So, And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We also want to thank Eisenhower Center. It's a brain injury recovery center. Learn more about EisenhowerCenter.com. They're located in Michigan and in Florida. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. We're going to bring you today three stories. Um, the combined career for these three folks is over 60 years of service to the country. First up, we're going to talk to an Army National Guard who's currently member who's currently serving, first-generation American. He's going to talk about why he serves and his time uh, overseas and uh, being a door gunner on a Chinook. Then we're going to talk to a career Navy man who, post-career, continues to help veterans but as importantly, and we're going to talk about this, he just wrote uh, a book on the Detroit Tigers, a passion of his from pay- playing baseball as a little kid growing up. So I think you'll find that interesting. And we'll finish with an interview with a United States Coast Guard admiral uh, who served over 36 years and has a real perspective on what's going on in the Coast Guard and uh, nationally uh, and globally as the roles of the Coast Guard changes. So stick around. They're all three great stories. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Rob Donovic. Rob, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thanks for having me, Jim. I appreciate it. And uh, Rob Donovic is a member of the uh, Michigan Army National Guard, and we're going to talk about some of his recent deployments and experiences but let's talk about who Rob is uh, before that. I know you're a Livonia City Councilman. Uh, you are a private fixed-wing pilot, yeah. which you might even be more proud of, and uh, a reserve police officer, son of immigrants from Albania who have a family restaurant in Livonia, Michigan, called Marco's Cozy Diner. But tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, first, Jim, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, you guys do a lot in the community, and I was excited to be a guest on your show today. Uh, my family immigrated to America in the 1980s, and uh, Dad came here from Albania and wanted to make a better life for his kids. Had us a few years later. We uh, were living here in the Livonia area, went to Livonia Public Schools, grew up here, grew up around the veteran community. I always thought joining the military would be uh, super interesting in the fact of what little boy doesn't want to shoot guns and blow stuff up as a, as a young guy. And uh, just having the impact of being around veterans, uh, mostly your your Vietnam era, your early Desert Storm, 
era veterans and they talk about their experiences in the military and I was like wow I just I really want to serve especially with my family coming to America with nothing and now I have this opportunity I get this good education I get to live a really nice lifestyle in the metropolitan area how can I give back and and coupled again with just being a little boy and wanted to you know get paid to shoot guns and then wanted to give back to my country ultimately I found the Army National Guard here in Michigan and uh, I'm in my fifth year now of a six-year contract and when you uh, went in, did, did you have any preconceived notions about what you were gonna, what your job specialty was gonna be, or where they might send you? Oh yeah, I mean, ultimately, I knew that you know, being in the in the current uh, war on terror campaign, I, I hoped and I prayed actually that I would deploy. I mean, that was the whole purpose of me joining the military was to serve my country and to to be a part of, of this group, this this family of, of soldiers that have left their families to to defend ours here at home. What an honor to, to do that. And then that dream really does come true. And, and I get the call saying, hey, we're, we're going to the Middle East. So every soldier that serves, that's that's their ultimate goal is to be able to defend their country and use all the training and, and every, everything you do from the time you go to basic training, prior to basic training, getting ready for basic training, then basic training, then you get your unit and your training. You're spending all these hours sleeping outside and you do this constant training rotation over and over and over again. And you're hoping that one day you get that call. And my unit got that call, uh, like so many thousands of soldiers before. You know, when we talk to uh, folks who join the military and maybe don't come from a military family, we always ask about mom and dad. How did mom and dad uh, think about this uh, adventure by their son? (laughs) Naturally, you know, they're not excited. I mean, my dad was like, wow, my my boy wants to join the military and, and, you know, defend this, this principle behind why I came here. And that really ultimately, looking back on, my the reasons why I joined, and I, I really understand at that point. But now, uh, being on on city council, I get to talk to so many different people from different walks of life, and then my own personal just experiences throughout life. I was able to serve with people and be one of those people that serve that are helping defend those freedoms. That this whole idea behind America, and to be able to part, uh, be a small part of that, and and it really puts things in perspective. I mean, how many immigrants come from different countries and they want to come to America? for this better life. They don't necessarily want to be rich, right? I mean, just live a life with opportunity and then the freedoms that we enjoy that sometimes we take for granted because we've never known anything differently. And uh, being over there in the Middle East, you see how people live and you really say, you know, man, I'm happy to be American because we really do have an amazing life. Um, And that doesn't say that we have things we need to work on, of course. Naturally, everybody does and every country does. But to be a part of that and and see the honor and the, the, the... uh, how happy my family were, my parents, you know, of course they're sad, but at the same time, like, wow, like that's my son. Like any parent is happy when they're, when they're doing something. Well, they're always happier too when you get home and all, yeah, all the yeah. pieces are still uh, put together. <laughs> yeah, what was, yeah. uh, what was your MOS uh, here? And I should say you, you, as you did, you're currently serving, mm-hmm. um, you got another year on the contract, but mm-hmm. uh, what, what's your uh, MOS? So I'm interesting. I'm an 11 Bravo infantryman. That's what I joined. And you know, infantry, you know, they always say God made the sky blue because he loves the infantry. I mean, that's our color, and, and we love the infantry. We're the ground pounders and yada, yada, yada. So there's a lot of always, you know, infighting amongst the different MOSs. There's some 200 different MOSs. But then I had the opportunity to uh, join an aviation unit, a Chinook, a CH-47 Chinook helicopter unit uh, based out of Selfridge Air Base. And uh, what a cool experience to get to flying around on a Chinook helicopter and, and man a gun. So I'm a door gunner on a Chinook helicopter. So I'm in a weird position where I'm an 11 Bravo, man, 11 Bravo 
uh, infantry soldier, but I'm also on a Chinook aviation team, and we operate as a, as a five-soldier crew, uh, two pilots and then three uh, air crew members in the back. And uh, tell us what the duties of the three air crew members uh, would be then. Yeah, so uh, we each have our sectors, and you were either left gun, right gun, or you work in the ramp. And the Chinook helicopter, it's a really big helicopter with, with two big rotor systems on the top. And normally, you know, when you're in country in a combat zone, you know, each door gunner, each crew chief is looking out their sector of fire. Uh, not only are you scanning for other aircraft or objects to make sure you don't run into them because the aircraft is such a large aircraft. It's some 30-some feet long, and then plus the actual rotor blades that ends up being about 100, 100 feet long. Um, so you want to make sure you're not running into anything. But then also, of course, any kind of uh, uh, ground-to-air um, enemies or, or air-to-air enemies. So you're constantly uh, working with uh, the, sh- the pilots up front. And the Chinooks are unique in that we all work together. The two Chinook pilots are, are flying the aircraft and getting us started at our next point, our next destination, but then the air crew members in the back are also helping uh, the pilots get there. So not only security, but uh, you know, making sure we don't run into anything. And then when we're actually doing uh, our missions, our missions can vary. It can be deliberate missions where you're bringing ground troops in to do a deliberate operation, or uh, normally we're doing a lot of cargo transportation troop movement. So we'd pick up troops in Kuwait and transfer them to Baghdad, Iraq, and then take them from Baghdad, Iraq to somewhere in Syria, um, all the way to, to Saudi Arabia. I mean, we would transport troops all across the area of operation. It just depends on their mission. And then also cargo. We're constantly transporting equipment, especially in the Chinook helicopter. It's so powerful. You can sling load another aircraft underneath you. You, you give two long ropes, basically, and you can carry an aircraft across the entire desert. Not uh, great on gas mileage, but no, you can pull it off. You uh, sure can, yeah. So, so did you uh, work uh, primarily with the same five-man crew? Yeah, normally we were the same crew. And, of course, things change, but it was normally the same five people. Some you fly with more, some you fly with less. We had uh, over there my company. Uh, it's comprised of about 60 sol- soldiers. Half of them were up in northern Iraq, and the other half were in uh, Bering, Camp Bering area in Kuwait. And then we'd operate out of western Iraq and the Al-Andar province out of Al-Assad Air Base. So we were split up throughout the region to kind of conquer, you know, the entire, it's such a large area that we're covering. Again, we'd be in Saudi Arabia to Syria to Baghdad to Jordan to Kuwait, I mean, all over the place. So um, we had 12 Chinooks total, six were in northern region, six were in the southern region. And uh, we'd, we'd fly all over the place. Some weeks we flew six, seven days a week. Some we'd only fly twice a week. It just really depends on what was going on at the time and then also the threat level. This is nobody will ever forget this year because it was a year of COVID. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit how strange that was as you moved uh, around the country here in the United States, but then went overseas. Yeah. So uh, a lot of the soldiers I work with, uh, most of them had four or five deployments, uh, specifically uh, someone I look up to a lot, uh, CW5 Mark Tyler. I think this is his fifth deployment, maybe in the last since 2002. Um, Denny Gervin, uh, Sergeant First Class Denny Gervin. Uh, this is number six or seven, I believe. So these guys have a lot of experience. Whereas this is my first deployment overseas, and they say this deployment was like nothing else because of COVID. I mean, the restrictions, um, the fact that we couldn't move anywhere, we couldn't go anywhere uh, before getting to country and after getting to country. They were so strict about what we could do because they were worried. Um, on top of that, when you're overseas, we were transporting troops. A lot of times they would be wearing masks because they were worried about, you know, um, COVID spreading across the different countries. In an aviation unit, specifically the Chinook unit, we were constantly moving so, long, so often 
that we got lucky that the army, the big army, couldn't really get their teeth into us with COVID because we were constantly moving, so they could never keep track of us. Where a lot of the ground soldiers, they were constantly having to go through COVID screening and tests and this and that. Um, so we got lucky in that. We were in our own compound. We were kind of separated. But I will say COVID uh, had a big impact on a lot of missions. There was a lot of missions that got canceled. Um, from a lot of friends I know on the ground side, they were doing patrol combat operations on the ground. A lot of their stuff was actually canceled because uh, DOD and, and the CENTCOM area didn't want COVID to be spreading because it was such an unknown territory for everybody. So it did even affect the military. You would have been uh, still overseas at the time that uh, vaccines became available here in the United States. Uh, tell us a little bit about the experience of vaccination uh, while you were overseas. Yeah, vaccination, if the soldiers wanted it, the soldiers could get it. Now, it doesn't mean it was available all the time. I mean, there was, you know, they'd offer the vaccine and soldiers would volunteer for it immediately. And some said, hey, I'm, I'm not really sure yet. Um, but it was available. It was a soldier's discretion if they if they want the vaccine. We've actually, uh, multiple times, we flew COVID vaccines or equipment to different bases. Uh, we worked with the Charlie Med uh, helicopters, which are basically the ambulance of the sky. And uh, COVID really affected them because they were transporting COVID-positive patients from, from facility to facility or base to base. So we'd be in, you know, Syria, which is very desolate. There's nothing out there, so they don't have the medical... Uh, supplies that they need or equipment to be taken care of. So we'd have to transport to another base um, within the country so that they can get that medical attention. So whether it be vaccines or just COVID patients, we felt that. It, it, it is a uh, remarkable opportunity to get up and get a bird's eye view, isn't it? Oh, and I've yeah. seen some of the photos that you've posted, and we're going to talk a minute about social media and how this deployment's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. But talk about that as an infantryman to get the opportunity to be a door gunner on a Chinook and all of a sudden, hey, I'm up in the sky. My deployment experience is unlike the majority of soldiers. I mean, being in an aviation flight crew, you really have the best of both worlds. Not only do you get to fly in an amazing aircraft and get to do amazing things, but you see parts of the country that the majority of soldiers will never see. Service members will spend nine months overseas, a year overseas, and only see the same four walls in their in their office or the same uh, patrol area of operation. Whereas in me, I mean, I'd be in three countries in, in one day. So it was long hours. We'd have long flight days. Sometimes you'd fly eight hours in a day. Sometimes you fly two hours in a day. But with that being said, I was able to experience so much of the region. And, and here I'm seeing Lake Tartar in northern Iraq where it was all man-made in the 60s or 70s, I believe, and it's just this crystal blue in a country with so much chaos and so much going on. This beautiful, clear, calm lake in the middle of nowhere. And you're like, what the heck? Like, how You, you think of Iraq and you're in Baghdad where it's crazy and all this stuff's going on, or you're in Kuwait where there's a million people moving around at one time and it's just so hectic. And then here you are in the middle of the Saudi Arabian desert where there's just this sand that flows for, for hundreds of miles and then you see a camel in the middle of nowhere. And you're like, how the heck did that camel get there? So, Does he know where he is and where he's going? <laughs> those things can transport for days. They know exactly where they're going. Yeah, yeah I think you were in, if I clip this right from one of our notes, uh, Iraq, Kuwait, Jordan, Syria, and Saudi Arabia. Yes, yes. So it, going back to this comment of on any given day, I might be in two or three different countries. Mm-hmm. You, you actually touched uh, one way or another five of them during this uh, yep. almost year, year deployment. And you naturally, this is a, this is universal for all veterans. We're away during the holidays. Yeah. 
uh, in your instance, it certainly would have been uh, the football season, which yeah. may or may not be a holiday. But <laughs> Thanksgiving <laughs> this year, uh, nobody missed much. But Thanksgiving, no. Christmas, Easter, yeah. talk a little bit about the the experience of today's uh, military member through those holidays. Yeah, I, I will always say I had it easy. Again, being an aviation company and flight crew, you get to see so many different things. And we were transporting gifts for, for different soldiers so that they can get their gifts from their families and their loved ones. And that was really awesome to, to be a, a part of that. And then you get really close to the soldiers you're with, especially in a flight company when you're spending so much time with these certain you know handful of people. You're living in a tent, you're using a porter potty, you're sleeping together, you're flying the same aircraft. I mean, everything, you're so close together. And then here comes Christmas. And, and that was that was big for me, spending Christmas in Iraq. Here I am in western Iraq and Al-Assad Air Base, a really uh, uh, remote part of the country, not not a lot over there, and I'm spending it with the closest people uh, that I've that I've ever made connections with. And, and let's face it, you hate them. You know, you're you're spending so much time together, you can't stand it. And then at the same time, here you are spending Christmas together, and you're singing Christmas holiday carols and whatnot. And you're just laughing and joking, having the best time. Um, Thanksgiving, here we all sit at a table together at Thanksgiving, and there's so many. You, you, you miss your family, your immediate family, because you're gone from them, but you picked up another family uh, in the same way. And I think that's something that uh, if you haven't been through that kind of experience, whether it's, uh, as you say, you know, as a soldier, as an air aviator, as somebody on a ship, that you really, that becomes the family. It does, yeah. And substitutes during those uh, holidays, which would otherwise be pretty, maybe well be pretty depressing. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's really different though today is social media, yeah. and the ability to be on deployment but but still be connected. How did you find the the connection that you were able to keep uh, between the deployment and and the folks back here in Livonia, Michigan, uh, because of the social media aspect? Yeah, well, you look at situations like uh, Sergeant Brian Shipman, uh, one of our flight engineers. Uh, been in the military for many years, was in Afghanistan, and now he, this deployment, his uh, he had his firstborn while he was gone. And uh, he tried to get home, but it just couldn't happen. So, you know, here his wife has their firstborn, and Brian's over here in the Middle East with us. And he was able to see pictures of his child. I remember uh, we were in Kuwait, and I we came down to our cruise shack, a little locker room. little It's a little trailer, basically, we have. And we sat around until 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. He was sleeping on the couch waiting for his child to be born. And just waiting, 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 because he knew at any point he was going to get that that uh, that FaceTime call, and the fact that he was able to share with that and be there for it, even though it was virtual, even though it was through a phone. Of course, he wanted to be there in person, but he was able to see that for himself. What an amazing thing technology has been able to give us is that experience that you could be thousands of miles away and basically still be in the same room. Specifically for me, I was able to post pictures on social media and kind of uh, help help provide a context behind what we're doing over there. I heard I hear that so often now that I'm back is people say, oh, I love seeing your pictures. It, I felt like I was there with you. I never really knew what soldiers do over there. And here you are providing like, you know, a firsthand account of what's going on. So to be able to inspire people about that, that was awesome to, to play that role. There's a lot of great things that we did. I mean, I'll always remember flying over Syrian villages and seeing the Syrians waving little American flags and the kids on the top of the rooftops waving at us. Um, because they loved that America was there to help them. Uh, so many stories of soldiers in the past that I served with that talked about, you know, they were flying ballots in Iraq to help them have one of their first democratic uh, elections held. And they were flying ballots to make sure that they get to the locations they needed to get to and soldiers guarding voting booths so that they could have the right to, to vote and not be intimidated. So while 
people can have different agreements about being overseas and why we're there, etc. At the same time, you're able to help a lot of people. So one of the things I guess I'd, I'd like to close with is to get from you sort of your view on whether whether it's uh, first-generation immigrants uh, joining the military to serve. Uh, give us a little bit of your philosophy on what you'd tell young folks about uh, this opportunity to serve. Yeah, the honor I feel and the people I work with is that is really what makes it great. And, and you get to give back to your community. And the thing is, you don't have to work in a Chinook. You don't have to be an a, a infantryman. You can, there's so many uh, MOSs, roles, jobs in the military, whether you want to work as an attorney, a litigator, whether you want to work in a, a, a career field like um, working with your hands, uh, electricians, plumbers, the list, list goes on that the military offers people, but it also offers a pathway to get your education taken care of. It offers a pathway to be be a part of something much bigger than any one person to be a part of this this organization that that its whole goal is to protect our country you don't have to your point about movies you're not you don't have to be in a shoot 'em up bang bang position you can be in a in a position that really helps people still but just is differently uh, so i think we have to get past this idea that you know the military is only getting yelled at and it's miserable and of course there's a lot of that it's not fun sleeping outside all the time it's not fun using a porter potty but there's also a lot of great benefits to being in the military. Uh, you just have to do a little bit of reading. Well, I hope you find that uh, inspiring, really, that uh, a young man still serving, first-generation American, talking about what it is uh, service uh, means and, and how to sort of maybe embrace what role you might have in serving your country. And he mentions you just got to do a little reading, and we're going to move on to an interview I did with uh, Roger Yoder, uh, Navy career retired, who went on to write something that I think you might find interesting. So listen into this about the Detroit Tigers. Well, we want to welcome to Veterans Radio today a Navy veteran, Roger Yoder. Roger, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank you, Jim. Good to be here. Well, you've served in the Navy for over th- about 20 years active and ten- another 10 years in the Naval Reserve, so 30 years all totaled. And uh, uh, you're a good example of when they say, uh, uh, you know, join the Navy, see the world. You got yourself uh, assignments not only here in the United States during that period of time, but overseas uh, as as well, um, including Iceland and Bahrain. I can't think, I, and Saudi Arabia. I can't think of any further distance in different climates than those two. So uh, I, I, you had a very interesting career, didn't you? Yes. Uh, Coming from a small town in rural Michigan, uh, it was enlightening to go to boot camp, and you got people from all over the country, uh, uh, different uh, makeups and different backgrounds, and then uh, uh, in the career as well, traveling overseas and stateside and and just uh, good various uh, uh, locations and, and types of duty as well. Well, we have Roger on today uh, to talk about a post-military uh, career passion of his that maybe started when he was in that small town. In, uh, he, he was born in Hillsdale, Michigan, and is now of Jerome, Michigan, uh, and that is uh, Det- uh, the Detroit Tigers. Where did your love of the Detroit Tigers start, uh, Roger? Well, it, it started uh, when I was in sixth grade. And so I was young, uh, uh, playing Little League Baseball, and, and you have the interest. And uh, things were different then because the Tigers were more available. They were on free TV and, 
and radio, and it was a lot easier to follow the Tigers than than it is for a young boy growing up today. Well, one of the things you've done now and that we're here to talk about is part of the Ultimate Major League Baseball Series. Uh, You've ridden it on the Detroit Tigers, Michigan's uh, favorite sports team. Tell us how this came about. Well, uh, I started working in the media while I was in the military, uh, radio, newspapers, and TV, wherever I was stationed. And uh, uh, after I got out, I I joined a paper full-time. And what I realized is when I'm on a morning deadline to get uh, my articles in the newspaper that day, uh, anything I did on the Tigers, I'd have to go to a number of sources. And uh, that just makes the task uh, even more difficult. And that's when I realized that uh, there needed to be a source of information where – uh, it's all in one location. Well, this really is the ultimate statistics guide. Um, everything you can think about is in this uh, book, uh, which is over 500 pages. I don't know where it really topped out at. But but tell us what uh, what you've crammed into this tome on the Detroit Tigers. Well, the uh, start out initially was going to be a review of each of the seasons, uh, 1901 through uh, 2020. But as the book evolved through the years, uh, that is in there, and you you see the history starting from 1901. Uh, each of those page reviews uh, starts out with a uh, it's laid out in decade format, and so at the beginning of each decade, there's a page review for the decade. So there's an all decade team. Uh, all-decade pitching staff, a player of the decade, and a pitcher of the decade. And then the book goes into the statistical part of it, where uh, you have the yearly leaders, uh, the career leaders, the decade leaders, uh, for over 100 stats for offense and 50 for pitching. Well, as I went through this, I mean, it just brought back all kinds of memories, uh, you know, names that uh, of players that, uh, you you know, you heard on radio or you heard, saw on TV. Maybe you got to go to Tiger Stadium and now Comerica Park. But but this is really a treasure trove of statistics. Um, How would you keep it all straight? Well, at one point it was in about seven different files, and then a couple of years ago I, I – I put everything together in a book format, page numbered it, all that, and then. Uh, um, but you pretty much, I, I just had to take it one section at a time. Um, but as you go through there, it has the statistics that we were familiar with growing up, like home runs and stolen bases, and batting average. Uh, to the uh, new age statistics today, they call sabermetrics, which evaluate those raw statistics for the on-field performance. Well, Roger, tell us where this book can be obtained if I'm out there and I'm, I've got a maybe a daughter who's a big Tiger fan. How can I get uh, this uh, book into their hands? Well, the book is finished and it's being processed for release. Uh, the release date hasn't been set yet, um, but what the listeners can do is go to uh, most people are on Facebook and they can go to uh, search Detroit Tigers, Michigan's favorite sports team. There's a Facebook page. Uh, that people can see uh, uh, sample pages, and they can follow the the book as it progresses, and the the release date will be there. I do know that it's going to be available online, uh, such as through Amazon. It's going to be an e-book option, and it's going to be in bookstores like Barnes & Noble. So wherever listeners uh, are used to getting their books, they'll be able to find this one easily. You can hear more about my interview with Roger Yoder and his naval career and his time in uh... 
uh, overseas in Saudi Arabia by listening in on his podcast that we have posted up at veteransradio.net. Before we go on to our final uh, program interview, let's uh, have a few more words from our uh, excellent sponsors. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative. Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help, but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. We can all help someone going through a difficult time. Learn how you can be there for veterans. Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. VeteransCrisisLine.net. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Now we're going to hear from a Vice Admiral retired from the United States Coast Guard, Sandra Stotts, who's had a fascinating career, has a new book out called Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass. Let's welcome her into Veterans Radio. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today uh, Vice Admiral Sandy Stowes. Uh, the Vice Admiral is a retired United States Coast Guard, uh, 36 years, I believe, in service. Uh, Admiral, welcome to Veterans Radio. Well, good. Hello, Jim. It's great to be here with Veterans Radio. I'm honored to be on your podcast today. Well, it's a real honor to have uh, somebody who has served the country as long as you have, uh, somebody who from the Coast Guard, which, as I mentioned uh, when we were setting this up, is always hard to find. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. But let's set this up a little bit about how a nice girl like you from uh, Maryland, a small town in Maryland, ended up at the uh, Coast Guard Academy. Oh, that's a great story. Thank you for asking, because I think it is something that can inspire people uh, who are looking to find what their passion and purpose is. And there's so much to choose from. And especially with today's youth, I think they really have a lot of challenges because there's so much out there and uh, there's uh, so much uh, um, interference with uh, what they're trying to do with their education. Look at the COVID, trying to prepare themselves for the future. So we all meet challenges depending on where we are in our lives. And back when I was a young girl, it was in the 1960s and 70s. I was born in 1960 for context. And the opportunities that came my way that kind of canceled out some of the challenges were that in 1972, you had Title IX that was passed, which gave equal opportunity in education for girls. So that was sports and, and studies. And then following on the heels of that was 1973, the Equal Rights Amendment. So by the time I got into high school in 1976, we had that legislation that opened doors for girls in high school to play sports and have assigned coaches. And that was so important to me. I was uh, an athletic kid, but I was shy and and unconfident uh, as a young girl. And sports helped me to build my confidence, as as did uh, competing in academics and having good classes uh, that I could go to. I was born and raised in Ellicott City, Maryland, which is near Annapolis, where the Naval Academy is. And in 19... um, I actually, I'm, I made a mistake earlier. I said I entered high school in 76. I entered high school in 74, but in 1976, that was a seminal year for me. I was a junior in high school, and the National Defense Authorization Act had required that all the service academies open their doors to women. So I applied to the Naval Academy, this new opportunity that had never been available to, to women and girls uh, up until that time, 
uh, thinking it would be a great chance for adventure and to serve my country. And, oh, by the way, it was a free education. And in those days, that was rare. So that's, uh, you know, the um, the several-minute version of uh, what could be, if you read my book, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, that's a uh, a 300-page book, but a little tiny bit of what what happened uh, along the way that gave me opportunities to get into a program, the Coast Guard Academy, that um, helped test me and helped me to achieve my full potential. And I didn't say why. I don't know how much time I should spend, but I did go to the Coast Guard Academy instead of the Naval Academy. And I guess, uh, Jim, if it's okay, I'll just uh, take a little tack on that. Go ahead. Because I did, a, I did apply right to the Naval Academy because that was right next door and I had my heart set on it. But I guess it's an important part of the story that a guidance counselor, so when you're young, you're looking to your coaches, your teachers, your guidance counselors, your parents as role models and mentors to help guide you into what is a good outcome. So my guidance counselor, PJ, said, Sandy, you should cast a wider net and not just put all your eggs in one basket in the Naval Academy. And I'm like, well, PJ, I want to go to the Naval Academy. And he says, well, I got this flyer in the mail from a thing called the Coast Guard Academy. And let's take a look at that. So I poured over that flyer, and uh, we decided wrong way, but at the time we decided it must be a small Navy. So, okay, I'll apply there too. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and I heard back from the Coast Guard quickly because we are a direct admit. We don't have to go through congressional nomination. And that's, at Coast that's, Guard an, Academy. that's an important point, and it is today. Still in that way, you can get in directly to the Coast Guard Academy. You don't need your congressman or your senator to, to uh, appoint you, and that has uh, a lot of advantages to people even today, I believe. And really, I'm glad you mentioned that, and I'm glad you gave me a chance to go back to this, why I picked the Coast Guard over the Navy. And it, it was true. We are under Title 14 of the U.S. Code instead of Title 10, so we are direct admit. And you get in on your merits. And I really thought that was important to me because I my core values as a young girl were hard work, perseverance, humility, honesty, all those things that, that you know, angled towards you get in based on how well you do, not who you know. And I was shy. I wasn't out there, you know, partying with everybody, knowing all these important people that could refer me to congressional nominations. So when I got into the Coast Guard, I um, into the academy, some of the cadets went on exchange programs. All the academies have this exchange program. And the um, women who went down to the Naval Academy, well, all the cadets that went to the Naval Academy, they came back saying, wow, women – at the Naval Academy can't do, they can't, when they graduate, they have to go into support roles. They can't go out onto combat ships, frigates and destroyers, submarines, uh, aircraft. And in the Coast Guard, our commandant said, hey, if we're going to admit women, they're going to do every job. So in 1979, as a cadet, I was on a summer cruise on the Coast Guard Cutter Dallas, a 378-foot high-endurance cutter. And it's, at some point in time, those ships were armed with Harpoon and Sea Whiz missile systems. I'm not sure if they were when I was on board, but I was not precluded from sailing on the Coast Guard's ships, even if they were outfitted as a, a warship. Um, the Coast Guard made the decision to let women serve in every position, and we were equal because of that. And I firmly believe we faced a lot less um, discrimination or or bias because we were able to do every job men could do. Well, and as further evidence of the Coast Guard's kind of leading the way here, um, 
uh, Vice Admiral Sandy Stowe's, uh, ended up being also uh, the first woman to lead a U.S. Armed Forces Service Academy when she returned to the Coast Guard Academy in New London and was its superintendent uh, during her distinguished career. But let me back up, Sandy. I, I want to I want to touch on a couple of things quickly because I want folks to get more of a sense of the background here. Um, you know, you, you often find folks going to the military because of family history, and that really wasn't the case here. And I found the family history of your grandparents on both sides kind of interesting, that one set of grandparents had come from Romania, they had a farm, and they really worked hard and and that's part of your core values was that you know hard work as you said a, a moment ago and another set of uh, grandparents lived up on Cape Cod and had a real exposure to um, the the water and sailing and in some way both of those grandparents certainly molded and made you part of the person you were going into uh, the Coast Guard Academy wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. I go back to that importance of role models in a young person's life when they're developing their character and core values. And that is your foundation for the rest of your life. And it helps you to be able to make good choices and good decisions. And like I said earlier, that's so important for our youth today with amid so many choices and options. How do you steer a straight course and keep your core values, be true to your to what's right and do the right thing even when it's easier to do something wrong. So I took so much of my grandparents' values um, from the summers that I spent with them, and especially at the at the beach, I guess because we're talking about how I got into the Coast Guard Academy and how I had no relatives that served in the armed forces, um, I got a liking for the sea and its lore there in Falmouth, Massachusetts, on Cape Cod, visiting my grandparents there during the summers. And I just love the freedom of being at sea in a rowboat. <laughs> My granddad had an old rowboat. He'd row us around the bay that they that they lived on. And um, it was simple, humble times. Well, and but I think it, <laughs> I think that's really comes through in your book, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, Leading in Uncharted Waters, is you kind of get a sense that, and it, and it fits into your leadership views on uh, on mentors and you maybe don't think of parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts as being mentors but certainly that's what they were for you as you were growing up and and you may be the only admiral who ever spent summers picking cucumbers and tobacco on the farm <laughs> and, and and again I, I i point that out to help folks understand where you come from um and and how you approach this and your honesty in the book of saying at the Coast Guard Academy, you know, you were an average cadet and a below average academically, um, (laughs) but you took everything and applied it diligently. And and preparation and performance and perseverance, um, those four, three Ps added up to success in the way you put your math together, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, And I think this is important because I was very intentional when I wrote this book of starting with my humble beginnings as a shy young person who worked hard, who didn't have any advantages in life and had to make it on my own, so to speak, which is why I was working at the age of 13. During the 1970s, we had the oil shock and there were no jobs and the future was a little bit bleak for going to college or going on after high school. So the the farm work gave me 
um, an opportunity to um, really get to know more about who I was and what I was capable of. And uh, that all uh, was important qualities and values when I got into the Coast Guard and at the academy and found out I was very average because in high school I had done well. <laughs> I was near the top of my class. And, and when it comes down to it, though, most of us are in the average category. Amen. And I wanted, to, <laughs> I wanted to start humble in my book as a young person because if people just saw a book by an admiral, Admiral Stowe's, um, and I started out at the executive level, they would be like, well, I could never get there. Why should I read this book? Because I'm never going to be able to be who she is. And I'm like, no, I started way down here. And 40 years later, because I was 40 years with the Coast Guard, 36 years active duty, but four years of the academy. So I would tell cadets, you know, you've got to take it one day at a time, one week at a time, one assignment at a time. You're not going to be an admiral for a long time and that's okay because it's the journey that matters average people are going to get on this journey and they're going to go through these uncharted waters with the icebergs they've got to go around the ice they've got to plow through the obstacles they've got to overcome and the average person can become um, above average by work by hard work and perseverance and um, being true to themselves and sticking with it well, one of the things that I also think um, in a in a career like yours, and and really any service career, but in a, in a naval service, you kind of start at the bottom. You're an ensign, you get the you get the crummy assignments, you get the crummy watches. You hope to make a deck officer. You move your way up to to maybe an ops officer, and then maybe you're going to get to be the executive officer on a smaller ship, and someday a commanding officer on a bigger ship. And in your instance, uh, you spent six years straight at sea duty in the beginning, uh, and, and through your career, you spent 12 years at, at sea. There's no way to cover all of that, but I, 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 just, I guess I want you to give folks some sense of some of those sea assignments and, and maybe talk a little bit about Nobody ever thinks they're going to be a lifer and spend 12 years at sea. So how does this, how does this happen? <laughs> yeah, I'll give you a good, another good little um, tidbit there. I, when looking back on my career, like when I was writing the book and even when I got to be a senior officer, looking back on my career, I, I, I just had, had convinced myself. I just grown to believe that I'd always expected to be um, a lifer, to use your words. I never use that word, but to use your word, a lifer. <laughs> and then I, um, when I made superintendent, when I came back to be superintendent at the Coast Guard Academy in 2011, I was an admiral, uh, well, a rear admiral. And a girlfriend of mine, a high school classmate, sent me an article the Baltimore Sun had written on, on me when I was a cadet. And I was maybe like a um, junior cadet, so three years in. And they sent a reporter up, how, how are the Maryland cadets doing up here at the academy? And they interviewed me. And, I, and they asked me, well, do you think you'll stay in the Coast Guard? And there's a five-year obligated service requirement for all the service academies so that when you come out, you pay back for what you had for a free education. Nothing's free. <laughs> and um, I said in that article, well, I don't know. I'm reading my own words. Well, I'm not <laughs> sure. I'll see how it goes. And um, 
and do my five years and see. And I'm like, I said that? I'm reading this now in 2011. I always knew I was going to sing in the Coast Guard for a whole career. This must be wrong. But it wasn't. That's how I thought at the time. But I had convinced myself, and I didn't even try. I just loved the Coast Guard. So I just presumed in my mind that I'd always felt that way. But for young people, you were going to think about what you're doing and wonder if you're going to stick with it. You're going to have your doubts. You're not going to know. And you need to be comfortable with that uncertainty because we live in a world of uncertainty and challenge. So as people navigate these uncharted waters, they just have to keep focused on the fact that that um, they're going to go through and it doesn't matter if they stay with the same occupation. So getting back to your question, I wanted to start with that anecdote because it shows how I wasn't sure when I was young if I was going to make a career of it. And then I did 12 years at sea and ended up staying all the way until the until I had to retire <laughs> for time and service reasons. But I, I went off to those first six years of sea duty and had no idea it was going to be six years. Um, I always loved being at sea. I loved the sailing when I was a cadet and the summer cruises. And I went off and my first ship was an icebreaker, a polar icebreaker going to the Antarctic. And what, how much better can it be than that? So I get on the ship and we sail down to the South Pacific. We stop in, um, what was the first place? Apia, Western Samoa. We go to New Zealand. We go into the ice to Antarctica. I get to experience all that and that's all in my book. And then I went to the Polar Star, another icebreaker. And I was loving the adventure, the people, the opportunity to be part of great missions that people would never know existed. Like, who knows what's going on in the Arctic and the Antarctic? But I was learning all that, and I was becoming confident and capable in my occupation. And how fulfilling and satisfying for somebody who started out shy, unconfident, to become good at what you're doing and to be able to stand tall on the bridge of that ship, being a qualified deck watch officer eventually. And so then I went on to another ship, and I only went ashore when the detail or the assignment officer told me I had to. But then I loved the shore jobs, and I found that anywhere I was assigned, regardless of how remote it sounded or how what headquarters, it must be the kiss of death. That's like the Pentagon to the other services. <laughs> and in fact, they were all wonderful opportunities. Why? Because I chose to see an opportunity instead of a challenge. Boom. There's, there's, there's the knowledge bomb right there. Everybody stop. <laughs> it really is. If you choose to see that as an opportunity, Hey, I'm going to go to headquarters. I'm going to be the chief, uh, chief of staff's aide. It's a pressure cooker. I'm going to find myself cutting budgets and people or involved in purchasing. I mean, these are heavyweight jobs. But if you if you accept them as a great opportunity to learn and do something good, then it's a great assignment. You never know if a bad assignment is going to be a good assignment. And that's true in the civilian life as well. So I, I think you explained that uh, well in the book, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, uh, Admiral. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's all a matter of experience. It's hard to tell young people this, and we all have to experience it. But I hope that the book and, and this podcast will help people understand everybody's average. You start from somewhere, and you work your way up. You work hard, you persevere, and you look for the opportunities amidst the many challenges that you're going to face. Well, I think I think you all – you had a – I wrote this down, put quotes around it because I thought it captured the the concern many of us have right in life when we are – 
quote, quietly competent, close quote, where people don't, you know, maybe we're not the brashest one in the room, maybe we're not the best backslapper, we're just going along, doing our business, and we're, we're doing it well, we're quietly competent. And you talk about that as sort of a phase there or, or, or an area where you kind of grow your, as your confidence grows, you kind of grow into more than being quietly competent. It's an interesting idea. Yes, and this book, I'm an introvert, um, a classic introvert, if you look at the, what that means, which it really means that you recharge yourself by your solitude as opposed to recharging yourself at the after party that everyone else is going to. But anyway, a lot of people who are introverts have commended me on the book and said, yeah, I can see myself in that. Because a lot of times the people who are rewarded wherever we are in life, whether it's the first grade classroom (laughs) or the sports field or the business room, boardroom, it's the louder people who push their hand up or who jump forward and are always filling the room with their presence. And then the quietly competent person sitting there waiting to be called on is the one who might have all the best ideas but never get a chance to to raise those ideas. So a good leader is going to look for that look around that table, look around that that sports field, playing field, look around the classroom and they're going to call on people who don't seem to to put themselves forward. And then by calling on them, they've usually often you'll find those people have the right answer, they're just afraid to to speak up. And then they develop their confidence, and then you've got a stronger team. And this is a leadership book, um, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, uh, Leading in Uncharted Waters by Vice Admiral Sandy Stowes. But I don't want to scare folks off because I don't need a leadership book. I, I saw this more as a, uh, a, a a book that also told you a lot about how to how to grow in your own life. And and uh, it's although she has a master's of business. Uh, administration from Northwestern University, and she has a Master of National Security Strategy from the National War College, um, and she was a superintendent or, or a college president, if you will, of the Coast Guard Academy. There is a little bit of a lower brow uh, uh, leadership advice that I could relate to here when uh, when you referred to Kung Fu Panda. Tell us a little... <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on uh, that as a leadership or or growth uh, uh, opportunity. Well, the Kung Fu Warrior doesn't look anything like a big fat panda, of course. (laughs) The only person that can read that is the Kung Fu Warrior. So they hand Big Fat Poe the scroll, and he unravels it thinking there's going to be the secret, you know, the secret sauce, how he's going to beat this foe. And he just screams and, and falls back and... All it is is a reflective paper that shows his big fat panda face. He's looking at himself. And that's like the moment for me. It's in you. It's all about, it's already in there. So how do each of us as individuals bring out the best of us that's ready to go out and fight and Uh, win? It's a great leadership (laughs) principle because it is, look within, it's there. You just have to bring it out. And it ties in, we'll tie this up with a ribbon here. So remind us what the Coast Guard motto is. Semper Paratus, always ready. And there you go, right? Look within, <laughs> be prepared, and always be ready. Um, and you, you talk about always showing up early for watch, always being ready uh, to, to assume command because you've done preparatory work before you walk onto the bridge. Um, 
and, and again, one of those life lessons you learn in the military that is going to help you in leading, uh, whether it's your uh, family or at work or wherever it might be. So breaking ice and breaking glass, leading in uncharted waters, is absolutely worth the read. Don't think it's too highbrow for you. Uh, don't think you won't get anything out of it because you can't relate because Sandy's very relatable in, in uh, this book. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about our, our beloved Coast Guard. And, you know, generally speaking, and I've been in a lot of roles in the Coast Guard that have um, responsibilities with program uh, management and everything, presenting budgets and programs to the Hill, the Coast Guard's usually... Um, most often treated well as far as people love the Coast Guard. But um, we're also small, and we don't um, ask for a lot. We don't pat ourselves on the back, and we blend in. And so we we were lost in transportation. We were in transportation department many years ago because we got um, overwhelmed by the Federal Aviation Administration, railroads, highways, you know, all that. Then we moved over to Department of Homeland Security during after 9-11, and um, we're competing with Customs and Border Protection, ICE, TSA. <laughs> it's easy to see how the Coast Guard, which is always doing its job, never in trouble, and, and um, you know, doing staying beneath the radar as far as attention goes. And because we're we're too successful, I would I would offer we don't get the attention because oftentimes congressional attention comes to fix big problems in the South China Sea with our national security cutters, 418 feet. We're in the Persian Gulf with our fast response cutters that are over there protecting U.S. Navy assets. We are uh, in the Arctic and the Antarctic with national with polar security cutters. But people don't realize that we're stopping the threat at the point of origin by pushing our forces overseas, serving right alongside our Navy counterparts. But that's not recognized or understood. So when the resources get spread around, we're not in the right committees and we're not uh, big enough to um, break through and get attention. Here in in, uh, 2021, is the the Coast Guard able to maintain full staffing. But I will tell you that when I was in my entire 40 career years in in the Coast Guard, we did not have um, enough staffing to get the missions done that people want us to do. And we're an organization that people want to add more missions to because we're so effective and so efficient. But we we work ourselves to death, and, uh, and there's not enough people to get all the jobs done. Well, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Vice Admiral Sandra Stotes of the United States Coast Guard Academy, retired. We went on for about another, oh, 15 minutes or so talking about the Coast Guard's activity in the South China Sea and the threat of force by the Chinese there, as well as the Russian and Chinese influence up in the Arctic. So if you want to hear more of that, go to veteransradio.net. Go to our podcast and look for our podcast with Vice Admiral Sandy Stotes. We really appreciate you uh, listening in every week on Veterans Radio. We try to bring you interesting stories. We're always looking for your ideas. So you can go to veteransradio.net and send a message to Dale at veteransradio.net or Jim at veteransradio.net. We'd love your program ideas. Uh, as always, visit our sponsors. Let them know that you heard about them on Veterans Radio and that their support is so key. 
we continue to solicit your support as individual uh, listeners. You, Ten bucks helps, a uh, hundred bucks helps. So anything that you can do to keep uh, this program alive, we're coming up on our big anniversary here. So uh, we hope to keep doing this for many, many years as we have new hosts and new story ideas to bring to veteran radio listeners all around the country. Uh, as always, we do a veterans benefits program that'll be at the end of the month. Send in your questions. Our sponsor, U.S. Wings, has a Top Gun jacket giveaway going on. You can enter to win that jacket. Uh, this is a Top Gun Maverick CWU-45P rec- recreation. You can go to our website and register that. We pick one a month, and we really appreci- appreciate uswings.com for helping out Veterans Radio as a loyal supporter for so many years. So, again, check us out at veteransradio.net and uh, give us some ideas and register for that great jacket. Oh, it also dawns on me, I better tell you that you can check us out on Facebook for Veterans Radio. If I don't do that, I get in trouble with our social media guru, Tammy. So I want to make sure I don't do that. Uh, Again, thanks for listening in this uh, week. We look forward to having you back next week. And until then, I am Jim Fossone, your officer of the deck, and you are dismissed.